Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Have you ever watched a scene in a movie and wondered why it was shot that specific way? Like, why are we watching the action from that weird angle or whatever? Director Paul Schrader is going to lift the curtain on that, at least for his new movie, Dog Eat Dog. There's a sequence in the opening uh, which takes place at a strip club, and I'm reading it, and I said, this is so boring. Here we are again, another one of these boring strip clubs, red light, blue light, fog light, the same shots of the girls, Michael Bay, here we come. And I just said, how in God's name can we make this scene somewhat interesting? And then it struck me that I hadn't seen a black and white strip club scene since Lenny. And so I said to my cinematographer, I said, let's just shoot it in black and white. Don't tell anybody why we shot it in black and white. They'll be so interested in trying to figure out why we shot it in black and white, it won't be boring. (laughs) Fair enough. It's bullseye. Coming up, Paul Schrader will tell us about the kind of guy he was in the mid-1970s. kind of angry, disconnected life he was leading that inspired him to write Taxi Driver. And then I'll ask Willem Dafoe if he can relate to those kind of personal demons, given all the psychos he's played. Um, I don't know. I don't know. See, no, I don't think... uh, Look, no, I don't know. Not like Paul described. (laughs) Later on, I'll talk to David Crosby. He was, of course, a founding member of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. We'll talk about how his career got started, how it fell apart, and why he thinks he's doing the best work of his life at 75. The people who think you have to be in turmoil or disturbed and high as a kite in order to make music are just wrong. They're totally wrong. You make much better music if you're straight, and you make... um, even better music if you're happy in the street. Plus, I'll tell you about a perfect record, one that you shouldn't judge by its cover. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. My guests on Bullseye are Paul Schrader and Willem Dafoe. Schrader is a writer and director. He wrote the screenplays for Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, and The Last Temptation of Christ, which starred Dafoe. Defoe and Schrader like working together. Their new movie, Dog Eat Dog, is their seventh collaboration. You might have seen their other work, Autofocus, Adam Resurrected, Affliction. Dog Eat Dog's sort of a classic one last heist movie. Except instead of a bank, they steal a baby. Defoe plays Mad Dog, a psychopathic career criminal with, wouldn't you know it, a sweet and tender side. In this scene, the three leads are plotting their one last job. Troy played by Nicolas Cage, just told them that they're going to be stealing a baby. Diesel, played by Christopher Matthew Cook, speaks first. Yo. What? What? thing that you always hear about. Well, there's a gig and there's a lot of money at the end. You run away to Hawaii. never, ever works out. Does it? I think it does sometimes. You just don't know about it because they run off to Hawaii 
and you don't ever hear from them again. <laughs> Why is that funny? Diesel, I understand what you're saying, but we painted ourselves into a corner. And now, we have to paint ourselves out. It's death or victory. And a pretty well better be victory. Paul Schrader, Willem Dafoe, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you guys on the show. Right. Thanks. Hello, Jesse. Paul, I... One of my producers was in charge of um, uh, pulling clips out of the movie for this interview, and uh, she sent me this email. I watched the first 10 minutes, and I couldn't deal with it, and I had to turn it off. Um, she watched the rest of it after that. But uh, I wonder why you chose to open the film with as intense a scene as you chose to open it with. It's a scene where Willem's character gets high about four different ways and murders a couple people with a knife. Well, we wanted to make sure people like you would leave. <laughs> <laughs> I stuck around, Paul. <laughs> oh, I thought you were the one who left. No, I'm throwing my producer under the bus. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, well, you know, it was a nice way to send the message to the audience that if you're taking this seriously, you're in the wrong theater. Oh, Interesting. I mean, I feel like I was... Uh, what do you mean by taking it seriously? It is It is a kind of pop, transgressive movie. It's a movie kind of about movies in a way. Uh, and, uh, you know, it has its tongue in its cheek and other places as well. And uh, that's what it's meant to be. And that message comes across very, very clearly in the opening. And if you're not comfortable with that then you've, uh, it's time for you to uh, try something else. Willem Dafoe, when Paul gave you the script to this movie, was that the opening scene? Uh, yeah, it was. It was when I re re read the, uh, it, it the got, script. It got my attention. <laughs> but it's well, funny well, to hear Paul talk about that because, of course, everything he says is true, but also when you have to inhabit it, you approach it like any other scene. I mean, you find the tone, but you have to commit to it, right? So uh, as you're doing it, you're aware there are comic elements and you're aware that there's an extremity to it, but I'm not thinking I'm making a transgressive film. I'm just in it. Well, I mean, as I was watching it, certainly, especially in that first scene, but elsewhere in the movie as well, there are kind of big aesthetic choices um, that you're making, Paul, that signal that it's going to be kind of grand, but it's not like you're not making choices that undercut the intensity of the scene and the intensity of the violence very much. You're generally making ones that underscore it. You know, there is a sense in the film that these three characters all know they're in a movie and that uh, Nick Cage character sort of thinks he's Humphrey Bogart and, and the Defoe character, he's playing that psycho in the movie. And so there is a, a distance from hardcore realism. And again, it goes back to the, the conversation we just had. You are supposed to enjoy that distance. And if you don't perceive that distance, it's going to be a very uncomfortable experience for you. Willem, when you are playing a character like this, yes. your character in this movie, Mad Dog, is... Um, you know, um, murderously psychotic, also very sweet yep. at times, but murderously psychotic. Yep. Um, how do you find it in yourself to commit as deeply as you need to to play that? 
Um, I don't know. That's the intuitive part about being an actor. Somewhere uh, there's these actions that you have to do. There's a scene that you have to realize. And you uh, connect with it. And uh, you commit to it. Uh, for me, in this case, it's quite easy. Uh, maybe these are the shadow parts of ourselves that, uh, you know, we can't act out. So when we get a chance in a fiction to act them out, uh, there's a kind of pleasure in, in it. Uh, it. It's not like a specific fantasy, but the actions are so strong and that they're kind of fun to commit to. Is it like scary or daunting in advance at all? Um, you know, scary or daunting is a little heavy. Uh, I, every time I approach something, I don't really, you know, I really have to, and I think this is a good thing, I really have to say to myself, hmm, how do I do this? What is this? Every time I make a movie, uh, you know, how you get there is different. And you may never get there. So there's that tension of not knowing, but that's also where you find the best impulses. So when I, you know, I just take stock in, I'm, I'm working with Paul again, who I've worked with uh, uh, six times before. I'm going to work with uh, Nick Cage, who I worked with in uh, Wild at Heart, and he's, a, he's an adventurous actor that always brings something to the table. And I got this material, this character that's, you know, yes, deservedly he's called Mad Dog, but he's also sweet and vulnerable and insecure. Those are things to play with. They they play on my imagination. So it's something that uh, triggers the uh, pretending in you. Yeah, Jesse, you know, let me address your sense of opprobrium. Uh, <laughs> I'm a public radio host, Paul. It's my job. <laughs> Willow and I have been involved in uh, a number of very prestigious and important films, and we're proud of that. But uh, Doggy Dog is not one of them. This is a different kind of thing, and we're proud of that too. And uh, you know, it uh, is it's part of the the journey of of play acting and writing. And uh, I, I don't think I would. I never made a film like this before. I don't think I'd make it again. But I'm certainly glad I made it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor Willem Dafoe and the writer and director Paul Schrader. Their new movie out now is called. Dog Eat Dog. You have made a lot of movies that are about alienated, desperate dudes. Um, and uh, I wonder, what's the difference in making a film between making a movie that's about that, that's fun, that has distance, and making a movie like that that is, as you just described it, uh, uh, whatever it was, serious and important or something like that. Yeah, it's just a matter of tone, and that tone is something you you realize while you're doing it. This book and the script were not written as a comedy. The deeper we got into it, the more I kept thinking, God, these guys are funny. This is this is hilarious. And, uh, and that tone just sort of carried me through both visually and uh, cinematographically. Um, I'm about to I'm preparing to do another film where the tone will be 180 degrees different. Uh, it will be very, very solitary and very meditative. Uh, and uh, I'm just uh, very thankful that uh, the world's a big enough place where I can do both. I, I read something that you said, and it may have been years ago, um, that struck me, which was that 
you you grew up in the Calvinist church and not in an abstract sense in a in a literal sense like not just like in a family with Calvinist inspired values but like in a religious community and you didn't see any movies until you were in your late teens and um you you said that you felt like one of the reasons you approached film intellectually rather than emotionally was because you didn't have the kind of vague but emotionally charged cinematic memories that most people have? Yeah, there's some truth in that. We never forget when we first fall in love. And we never forget the music that was playing when we first fall in love. And we'll listen to those pop songs until we're 80 years old. The same is true about movies. We remember the movies that were playing when we fell in love. And when I fell in love with movies... It was the European cinema of the 60s. It was Godard, Truffaut, Bergman, Antonioni. And once you fall in love at that level, you will always be in love at that level. Was it difficult for you to come to think of yourself as a filmmaker when you started your career as a film scholar and a film critic? Uh well, I began as a film critic. I never thought I would be a filmmaker. And uh, <clears throat> I was interested in it because it was forbidden. Uh, and and uh, and it was the times. It was also the 60s. And so film was the medium that was being used to express uh, social issues. And so that if you were involved in film criticism, oddly enough, you were actually involved in the movement, the political movement. So that's where I came into it. Uh, and then I just uh, I assumed I would be a film critic, and I entered a phase in my life where uh, my emotional and psychological needs were greater than those that could be addressed by nonfiction, and I had to start telling stories if I was going to process some of the feelings I was having. What kind of feelings were you having? Well, driving around a car full, full of anger all night long, you know, wanting to kill somebody. Uh, you know, the, the, that car only has one direction unless you start doing something about it. Were you literally driving around in a car wanting to kill Yeah, I was somebody? living in my car. That, that was in L.A., not New York. Everybody lives in their car in L.A. <laughs> 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 yeah, nobody lives in their car in New York if you can afford a car. So, yeah, and so what had happened was I started getting this pain in my stomach, and it was a bleeding ulcer. I was 25 years old, and I went to the hospital, and I realized I hadn't talked to anyone for weeks. I'd just been wandering around, and often I would go into the the porn theaters because they were open all night, and people would go in there to sleep. And uh, and I'm drinking very, very heavily. And in the hospital, this metaphor occurred to me, uh, this taxi cab, this yellow coffin floating through the open sewer of the city with this kid trapped inside, uh, you know, who cannot be heard, who looks like he's surrounded by people, but in fact is absolutely alone and is dying. And as soon as the power of that metaphor occurred to me, I knew that I could use that metaphor to understand this kid and not be him. 
and therefore that art in fact really works. It's just a very practical thing. It works like a hammer or a, or a pliers works. You can use it to change and correct your life. And, and as you said earlier, I, I, I was raised to be a minister, so I just, you know, I just delivered a little sermon. <laughs> <laughs> Willem, have you ever gone through a period in your life where you felt unmoored? Um, I don't know. I don't know. See, no, I don't think. Uh, look, no, I don't know. Not like Paul described. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I was quite young when I found out this kind of engagement with the fiction, this uh, uh, disappearing in other realities and uh, telling other people's stories and coming to other people's point of view, that, that exercise that is performing and pretending. I, I don't do it as therapy, but it does have a therapeutic effect that Paul kind of indicated in his sermon there, which I liked very much. That's why I'll keep on coming back to the church. <laughs> well, and when do you feel like you recognize that in your life? I just think when, you know, when your little me uh, disappears into a bigger us, <laughs> you know, when you kind of disappear into something greater, which you can do when you make things, um, it, uh, I like that feeling. I like that feeling. I feel um, more uh, like I'm awake. Is part of it the part that I think is particularly strong in acting, that is that you are doing it with other people? Yes. I think you know one of the big tragedies about being an actor is you... I mean, there are ways that you can do it, but uh, actors need other people to act. <laughs> And they need an audience. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. That's arguable. But, um, yeah, it's not lost on me that every time that you make a film, particularly, let's say, if it's not an industrial film, uh, it's a more personal film, or it's a location film, or a combination of those things, um, you know, you make a little family each time. And uh, you make something, and uh, that's all. I, I like that activity. I like the social aspect of uh, coming together. I like it in the theater as well. I'll continue my conversation with Willem Dafoe and Paul Schrader after a break. Willem Dafoe is going to set me straight about acting. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Take Bullseye and more with you, the NPR One app. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. Election essentials, local stories, and your favorite podcasts. NPR One is ready to make driving, working, or cleaning the house better. Find NPR One on your app store. Support for this podcast and the following message come from iBooks with A Clash of Kings, Enhanced Edition by George R.R. R. Martin, which contains interactive maps, author notes, illustrations, and much more bonus content that makes this epic story come to life. Whether you're a diehard fan who's fluent in Dothraki or a reader who's digging into the series for the first time, A Clash of Kings, Enhanced Edition takes you on a thrilling adventure. It's available exclusively on iBooks at apple.co slash Game of Thrones. Not available in all countries. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Paul Schrader, one of the stars of his latest movie, Willem Dafoe. Let's play another clip from Dog Eat Dog. And my guests are Paul Schrader, who directed the film, and uh, Willem Dafoe, who's one of its stars. So the movie is about these three criminal confederates, 
um, who are all relatively recently out of jail and they're, you know, they're basically planning one last job, right? And it's kind of starting to go off the rails. And in this scene, Mad Dog, which is Defoe's character, and another guy called Diesel, uh, who's played by an actor named Christopher Matthew Cook, um, are alone together. They're taking this man that Mad Dog has shot and trying to get rid of his body. And they've been kind of He was going to shoot me first. That's true. <laughs> Um, I understand that you stand behind your psychotic, murderous character, Willem. <laughs> uh, um, and uh, these two characters haven't talked very much. Um, they're the two bases of the triangle with Nicolas Cage's character at the head. Um, and this is something that they're trying to do together. Let's listen. I know you don't like me. Uh, no, it's okay. I know you don't like me. And a lot of times I don't like me either. But what I wanted to tell you is uh, I see the relationship you have with Troy and how you handle things. And I just want you to know that I really admire it. Just try to be businesslike. No, that. I, I see you got a good thing going. You, you just got, like, you, you got ESP. You, you just get in that zone, and I admire it. And... I guess what I'm saying is I always wanted to be your friend. Come on, Doc. You're my friend. No, no, no. Like a true friend. Like you are with Troy. A real friend where there's mutual respect. It's a pretty intense scene. Um, Paul, it seems to me like one of the threads that you're pulling on in the movie is these guys who are in these desperate circumstances looking for connection among each other. Like the big moment of the scene where they decide to do one last job is where they decide that no matter what happens, they're going to go out together samurai style. I think that the, the fun of part of the story is the randomness of it. The fact that you don't know where it's going. And I defy anyone who hasn't heard about the film in advance to you know, guess where it's going. And so just like an interesting piece of music that's spinning off here and there, I think that's uh, enjoyable. So every time someone tries to make this concise or logical or, or clean or explain it, I kind of push back against that because it never was that way for me. What did the, or, or what does the noir film the, especially the movies that came out largely before you even started going to see movies, Paul, mean to you? Oh, well, you know, it's, it's those dark uh, water-soaked streets. It's that doomed voice of narration. It's that lighting that is on the floor, you know, throwing huge shadows. It's the sense that this is never going to work out and that, and that it's just a matter of of time before the doom keeper knocks on the door. Why do you like that? It sounds like you like that. <laughs> well, what's not to like? <laughs> I'm asking that question sincerely, Paul. I mean, I, it's not that I don't like that because I also really like that. But I wonder if you could tell me, like, 
personally for you, this is a world that you've, you know, you've often taken it a few steps further, but, um, you know, it's a world that you've lived in since you were a critic. Um, and I wonder why it's so resonant for you. Well, I, maybe I just find a little more truth in the nature of contradiction. I mean, character is contradiction. Uh, I loved her so much I hit her. That's character. I loved her so much I hit her again. That's more character. So <laughs> that if you're interested in character, you're interested with people who are walking, talking contradictions. And where it happens to a walking contradiction, well, odds are they start self-destructing. And there you go. Now you're in that genre. Willem, acting is uh, choices, it is often said, right? And I don't agree with that. Oh, really? I want to know why. <laughs> uh, acting is flexibility and commitment to the task and uh, a willingness to be transformed by your applying yourself to these tasks. But the choices kind of take care of themselves, at least in my school. That's interesting. I, I have like... to, to make choices, conscious choices. I, I prefer a more intuitive approach because when you're making conscious choices, you're deciding and you're making selections that tend to telegraph what you think about things. And I think you should be in movement. You should feel the story. You shouldn't tell the story. The director tells the story. I feel the story. I am the story. So when you talk about choices, that's usually tipping your hand to me. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor Willem Dafoe and the writer and director Paul Schrader. Their new movie out now is called Dog Eat Dog. I want to play another clip from Dog Eat Dog. And, Paul, you've been in the movie business now for, I guess, uh, more than 40 years. Uh, Dog Eat Dog is your big breakout role as an actor. <laughs> um, and you're in this scene. You play the gangster mastermind who's named Greco, uh, Greco the Greek. And... Um, He's he has instigated this one last job, and uh, he he just realized that during the commission of the job, which is a uh, kidnapping and extortion, the um, the person that they were trying to get money from uh, got shot and killed. Um, and he's on the phone with Troy, uh, who's the leader of the gang, played by Nicolas Cage. Jeffy's not going to be happy about Brennan getting whacked, but on the other hand, you didn't try to cheat him, so. He'll get over it, I hope. I hope. I mean, he has to understand that there's a certain likelihood that the we guy... We don't have to understand He doesn't understand He's a stubborn, pig-headed But I will try to cool him off, Troy. All right, I mean, look, we're almost out of gas here. What's that supposed to mean? It means we're out of money. We were counting on this to... To work out. Everyone's down their last nickel right now, so... All right, uh, meet me in the morning, 9, uh, uh, May 10, at, uh, at Captain Tacos. By the bagel place? Yeah, exactly. I'll get you some dough, and we'll see what we're going to do about Jeffy. I mean, he should cool off eventually, I hope. All right, I'll see you tomorrow at 10, by the bagel place. Okay, peace. <laughs> I really like it when you say it. Well, as, as you could uh, hear, I had a laryngitis that day, 
and a running fever. And uh, all I re really remember of that particular day was trying to get through it. And in fact, by the end of the day, uh, my voice was completely gone. Um, and I, I never intended to uh, be in the film. I never had wanted to be. I've always refused to be. Uh, this goes back into, uh, all the way back to Taxi Driver 40-some years ago when a character uh, got sick and I asked Scorsese who's going to play him. And Marty said I th he thought he would. And I said, Marty, please, please don't play him because I had in mind that Marty would see himself on screen and cut himself out because the scene was not an essential scene. And, of course, I was 100% wrong. Marty saw himself on screen. He loved himself on screen and made it as long <laughs> as he possibly could. But I had that same fear. I said, you know, if I put myself in a movie, I'll see myself. I won't like myself, and I'll cut myself out. And uh, finally, in this case, you know, I, I was just getting so old, I really didn't care anymore. <laughs> and, and I had, and Marty was going to do it, but he couldn't do it at the last minute, and uh, I was the only one left we could afford. Well, um, um, what, what part of your work is the most fun to you? Uh, uh, the doing, that's all. Uh, I, I thought you were going to say the interviews. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, by contrast, I, I don't like anything outside the set so much. I don't like uh, putting the movie together. I don't, you know, I like I like being on the set. Well, guys, I'm so grateful uh, that you submitted yourself to this torture. <laughs> Every week on Bullseye, we bring you in-depth interviews with the creators you know and the creators you need to know. But if that's not enough cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture. This week hosted by the charming and delightful Winter Mitchell. Winter, what's popping this week on Pop Rocket? Hi, Jesse. This week we're talking Westworld, and we also get to talk to Charles Yu, who's a story editor on the show. And we get to ask him a bunch of questions and like try to pry him for plot details. He's not, well, we'll you'll see. You'll have to listen to the episode to see what he gives up. Westworld Insights on Pop Rocket. Find it in your favorite podcast software. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. David Crosby's work paved the way for the folk rock movement. He was a founding member of The Birds. He performed at Woodstock as a member of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And that was right around the time that he started heavily using drugs. He eventually got sober, but only after he spent nine months in a prison in Texas. Crosby's been a musician for over 50 years. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. You might expect a guy like that to start slowing down at 75, but Crosby's writing more than ever. His new album, Lighthouse, is out now. Here's the opening track, Things We Do for Love. Was it something she said? About a dream she had One of those ones That faded so fast You knew it was bad She dreamed That she's losing you I guess it's time there's only so much time 
reaching through the fear that's holding her here. David Crosby, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, man. So where did you learn to sing? Uh, (laughs) I didn't. Uh, I never learned a darn thing. Um, I started singing. You know, my family sang folk songs and stuff, and so we we all sang together. I started singing harmony when I was about, mm, they tell me, around six years old. And I started singing in clubs as a folk singer when I was about uh, maybe, I don't know, 14, 15, something like that. And then uh, I started earning my living that way when I was probably about 17, 18. You were in a group, and I'm not trying to out you here because you've been, you know, you were also in uh, The Birds and Crosby, Stills and Nash, two uh, groups that are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, but before that, you were in a group called Les Baxter's Balladeers. Uh-huh. Yeah, had to bring that up, didn't you? <laughs> Can you tell me about Les Baxter's Balladeers? Yeah, we needed dinner. <laughs> uh, I had been at that point singing a uh, song with my brother, who uh, was also a musician, and uh, he would play bass, I would play guitar, we would sing. And um, we needed to actually earn a paycheck. And at that time... Folk music had devolved into the Christie Minstrels and, uh, you know, pop group folk, folk music. And so um, Les Baxter, a composer and recording guy, uh, he wanted to have one of those. He said he, he figured he could make money with that. And uh, so he hired me and my brother and my really wonderful longtime friend Bob Ingram and another friend of mine, Mike Clow, and uh, the four of us, uh, we actually sang pretty good, but we looked sillier than shit. I mean, silly. <laughs> we were wearing red base, red bellboy jackets and black pegged pants, and it was embarrassing. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to two-time Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee David Crosby. His new album is called Lighthouse. You know, I I talk to a lot of people about where their creative careers come from. And for a lot of people, there's this big turning point that basically is them realizing that it was possible to make a living being an artist of some kind. Um, and not just like that it's possible in the abstract sense, but that they can actually see a, a path in that. Um but I imagine that that was sort of in the cards for you because your your dad was in show business. Your dad was a uh, cinematographer and, in fact, an Oscar-winning cinematographer. Mm-hmm. But I feel like maybe there's a difference between being in Les Baxter's Balladeers uh, and – the kind of show business that you ended up being in, in that one feels like classic showbiz. You put on an outfit and you have a job. Yeah. And the other is something completely different. It's a a much more evolved state. Uh, It's not that the people who are doing it, you know, in the Holiday Inn bar are are 
bad musicians necessarily or that they're less than because they do it that way. They're just trying to earn a living. Uh, I got lucky. You know, uh, I was singing by myself and really enjoying it and, and gaining skill, you know, uh, as I went along. And then I walked into the Troubadour where I'd been many times and where I was very familiar. And uh, there was – there were these two guys, Roger McGuinn and Gene Clark, and they were sitting there singing these songs that that Gene had written after listening to the Beatles. And I started singing harmony to them because they were good. And so that was how we started the birds. And then after that, I was – I figured out that I, I was just a tremendously lucky guy, tremendously lucky. Why did you leave the birds? I didn't leave the birds. They threw me out. Why did the birds throw you out? Because I wasn't. <laughs> 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 I don't know. You know, we were young guys who had a whole lot of success really fast, very before we were even could even spell mature, and we had big egos. And I wanted a bigger piece of the pie. I wanted to be noticed more. I didn't want to just be the harmony singer. I wanted to write songs and record them and, I, you know. But I think there was a lot of egos and a lot of silliness, you know. Normal things for band. When you started with uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, was it that same thing that drew you in, just that feeling of singing harmony with people and feeling like these pieces fit together? Kind of, but by that time, I knew a whole lot more. I knew that Stephen Stills was writing great songs. I knew that he was a major talent, and I knew that he was already writing songs that I wanted to sing. They were terrific. I'd been tossed out of the birds. I was hanging around L.A. I was, you know, doing whatever, and uh, I knew Stephen, and we liked each other, and so uh, I... I realized that early on that the song is the key to the entire thing. If you have a good song that you can sit down and sing to somebody with a guitar or a piano and make them feel something, then you're in business. Then you are on the map. You are on course. Uh, if you're trying to do it without having a real song, with just having June Moon Spoon or Ooh Baby, well, then you're, you know polishing a piece of stuff. You're, you're not – the central issue isn't there. So I realized that pretty early on and it, it happened you know, because I was listening to great writers. Uh, by that time, James Taylor was happening and was a very significant influence on me. Uh, and frankly, right after I got tossed out of the birds, I went to Florida and walked into a coffee house and there was Joni Mitchell. And Joni, when she – started out was uh, an experience that you really – it would be hard to describe to you. I walked into the door. I stood there. She was singing one of those songs that she wrote early on, and I was just gobsmacked. I didn't, I didn't know anybody could be that good. You fell for Joni Mitchell romantically as well, right? Yeah. It was kind of like falling into a cement mixer. <laughs> uh, a very turbulent girl. Uh, and I love her still. But uh, thank God I'm not with her. Was it scary to be in a relationship with somebody 
a romantic relationship with somebody who you felt like was definitely better at the thing that you had dedicated your life to being? Of course. Of course. And I was producing her record, her first record, at the same time. And I would write something, you know, like Guinevere, and I was pretty proud of it. And she would come home and sing me three songs that were better. And I would shrivel up a little bit. <laughs> it was, truthfully, it was a massive learning experience. Uh, I think in 100 years, they'll look back and they'll say, okay, who was the best singer-songwriter? And it's either her or Bob. And she sings rings around Bob. Rings. She's a much better musician than Bob is. And I love Bob, and he's my friend, and I, I'm not trying to slag him. Uh, but it's Joni all the way. She's the best singer-songwriter we've had yet. I'll finish my conversation with David Crosby after a break. He'll tell me what it was like coming out of prison, trying to get his life back after drugs. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Before we get back to the show, the NPR Politics Podcast is counting down to Election Day with new episodes every day. Skip the cable news hangover and stay caught up with them. They'll have new podcast episodes every afternoon, so you'll know what happened and what it means by the time you get home. Or to class. Or finish walking the dog. Whatever your routine, make the NPR Politics Podcast a part of it. Every day, now through November 9th, because we're all going to wake up and wonder, what just happened? Subscribe or listen on the NPR One app. Okay, back to the show. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is David Crosby. With The Birds and Crosby, Stills, and Nash, he helped turn folk music into rock and roll. His new album is called Lighthouse. I'm sure that you were uh, smoking pot and doing psychedelics uh, from the you know from the moment they were broadly available. Um, but when did you start? Um, when did you start using uh, other, you know, whatever harder drugs, cocaine and and more? Early times of Crosby, Stills and Nash. Uh, uh, we started fooling around with cocaine, and that was a deadly mistake. Uh, didn't all get really. Uh, really terrible until uh, Christine Hinton uh, got killed and uh, in a car wreck. And I had n no equipment to deal with that. Nobody had ever died on me before that I loved. And uh, so um, that's when I started um, going off the deep end with the cocaine and, and heroin also. Were you scared to do it? Scared to do what? Were you scared to do the cocaine or scared to do to use? Oh hell no, no no no! They told us it wasn't even addictive. <laughs> Funny, most addictive substance on the planet. Did you see other people around you hurting because of it? Not not then, not at the beginning. No, no, we didn't know. We had no idea. And what it turned into was a plague. It killed a whole lot of us. I once. I once started writing down the names of people who had died because of hard drugs. And uh, I think it was close to the end of the second page of long-form yellow legal pad, you know, that kind. Single space, second page. I was getting close to the end, and I said, I can't do this. It's too depressing. And I stopped. How did it change your life? I mean, like, 
not in the grand scheme of things, but in the day-to-day of things. It destroyed me completely. I became obsessed with it. Uh, my higher consciousness was pretty much canceled out. And, you know, I just made mistake after mistake after mistake until I went to prison. And in prison, they don't have that stuff. And so I kicked both drugs in prison, in a cell, with nothing, not even an aspirin. When did you go to prison? Mm, 85 for a year, Texas. I mean, that's that's a long time. A year? Uh, yeah. I, a, but, no, I, I mean, it's a long time to be using. I mean, that 10 or 15 years, that's a, that's a big chunk. Long time, but we had a lot of money, so it was easy to uh, get uh, in a mess. The, the point is, though, that when I went to prison, I did beat it. And it's a terrible way to beat it. But I went to prison, I came out, and then I did about 14 years in those uh, 12-step rooms. And uh, I beat it. I beat it. I've never done it since. What was it like for your relationships when you came back from prison clean um, and, you know, you had this 15 years of your life to deal with? Well, you take things one at a time. The main thing was that I had by that time fallen in love with Jan Dance. And uh, Jandy went into treatment when I went in the joint and uh, waited for me. Now, no one, I mean no one, waits for their guy, their boyfriend who went to prison. They immediately go start another life. Jandy didn't. She loved me, and I loved her, and we waited, and she waited for me to get out. And then we got back together and got married. We're now together 40 years. How did you feel different in your relationship with music um, after you got clean? Uh, well, I felt great because I could do it better. I mean, you, you know that, right? The people who think you have to be in turmoil or disturbed and high as a kite in order to make music are just wrong. They're totally wrong. You make much better music if you're straight, and you make um, even better music if you're happy and straight. Is it is it easier or harder for you to write, and to some extent to play, um, now that you're a what seventy five? Is that right? Well, you know, um, yes, and it's kind of almost inexplicable. Uh, most people uh, kind of uh, fade out on writing, uh, which is the key thing: the writing. Um, as they get older, either they feel that they have said what they've got to say or they keep trying to have another hit uh, or they just get lazy. I want to play uh, another beautiful song from your new album, Lighthouse. My guest is David Crosby, and this song's called By the Light of Common Day. By the light of common day Things look different than they did in the starlit dark. The dark was warm and clouded. It was easy to deceive yourself. So, David, I, I want to ask you about um, 
you're on you're you're on Twitter, and you're uh, you're really fun on Twitter. <laughs> you really you really like actually talk to people and engage with people's questions and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do too. It's a huge part of a huge part of my career. Um, but I have never I've never gotten to the point <laughs> where the lousy part of it, where just somebody just casually uh, insults you in a really specific way while walking past your Twitter doesn't bother me. Um, is that is that gone for you at this point of your career? Like if if somebody if somebody has some weirdly specific and and maybe even semi accurate insult to you personally on Twitter, does that does that roll off your back? Pretty much, they're trolls. They're trolling. Uh, they're trying to get a reaction out of you. It's like TMZ guys. You know, they're trying to get you mad. They're trying to get a reaction. So what do you do? You don't do anything. You just ignore them. Uh, I never answer those people. I want to read one of these tweets that you tweeted. Uh... <laughs> Let me guess. It's about Kanye West? Yeah, well, <laughs> here's the thing, David. <laughs> I really love Kanye West. Well, you know, everybody has, makes mistakes. I mean, I don't blame you for that. <laughs> So this is this is your word straight from your mouth. I'll let you explain to what extent you were trolling or not. Uh, somebody asked you, how do you feel about Kanye at, at the Glastonbury Festival? This is about a year ago, saying he's the greatest rock star of all time. Now, to be clear, I don't think Kanye West was speaking literally at the time. I think he was. I think okay. he thinks that. The guy can't sing for beans. If yeah, you well, listen you can't to the rap. I don't try. I think rap's junk. Except when somebody elevates it the way Macklemore does or the way uh, the guy who wrote uh, Hamilton did. But when Kanye does it, when Kanye does it. Let's be pen pals. No, I'm sorry. When Kanye does it, it's bad percussive poetry over somebody else's music. Kanye West cannot sing, write, or play. How'd you get on board with Macklemore? My son. I was was downing all rap. And he said, oh, yeah? All junk, huh? Okay. Listen to this. And he played me Same Love. And I, I started catching glimpses of the lyrics in there, and I went, wait a minute. And I Googled them, and I printed them, and I looked at them, and they're good. The guy can write. Same for uh, Miranda. He's brilliant. Yeah, he's a friend of mine. You know how strongly he disagrees with you on this whole thing, That's right? okay. I'm totally good with that. But he, that rap that he did about Puerto Rico was stellar. Could it just be a different thing? Could it be that he's not really good? No, I mean, like, could it be the could the aesthetic values of it just be different than the ones that you're judging it on? Yeah, it, mine are good and his are bad. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm sure, I'm sure that <laughs> you're not going to win this one, man. Trust me, I got I got truckloads. <laughs> not, not on public radio, anyway. Yeah, yeah, not going to happen. <laughs> Are you comfortable with the idea of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, this thing that has been part of who you are publicly and part of your artistic life for whatever it is now, uh, coming up on 50 years, being a thing that was rather than a thing that isn't? Completely. I'm completely comfortable with it, man. What happens to bands? Bands devolve. 
from the point that they peak, they devolve. They, it, it heads for just doing it for the money, and pretty soon it's just turn on the smoke machine and play your hits. Well, that's not good enough. Not for me anyway. It's not good enough. There's no excitement there. There's no joy. There's no forward motion. Zero. And that isn't acceptable to me. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled. And this sounds insincere because everything that comes out of my mouth sounds insincere, but uh, it's really sincere. I, I'm absolutely thrilled uh, that you have this much verve. <laughs> Thank you, man. Um, and it's, it's really nice to get to talk to you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, my pleasure, man. Totally. David Crosby, he's got a brand new album. It's called Lighthouse, and he's got more on the way. Oh, uh, yeah. I would say it's worth following him on Twitter at the David Crosby. Thank you, David. I really appreciate it. Sincerely. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, Jesse. I host the show. We call it The Outshot. The cover of Ray Barreto's album, Acid, is misleading. It's called Acid, came out in 1968. It looks kind of like how you'd think it would look, given that information. There's Pareto playing his congas in a kind of crazy red psychedelic haze. And all the letters are sort of dripping down onto him. But don't get it twisted. Acid's a perfect record, but it isn't even a little bit psychedelic. Of course, that doesn't make it any less groundbreaking. Barreto was already a successful player when he signed up with Fania Records in the late 60s. He'd hit with a pachanga record in the early 60s, just when American Latin music was starting to sell. He spent the next five or eight years working to remake himself. Fania Records was sort of about synthesis. It was a salsa label, but their idea of salsa was as music for all American Latinos. It was American music, a melting pot. When Fania made a movie, they called it Nuestra Cosa, Our Thing. Actually, they translated it in English as Our Latin Thing. Barreto's album was the first step toward that ideal. It was salsa, boogaloo, R&B, and jazz mixed together. It left behind the churn of dance crazes and reached towards something bigger more permanent. Acid also reflected the new values of the album era. Records weren't just collections of singles anymore, hit-and-miss piles of whatever the last 1245 somebody put out were. They were a form in themselves. Barreto put together a record that plays strong from start to finish. Every song could rock a dance floor, 
the songs were serious, too. It was sort of a mission statement. No wonder the first track was called El Nuevo Barreto. It really was a new Barreto. final track of the record is an eight-and-a-half-minute jazz jam called Espiritu Libre. It was Barreto cutting loose completely, showing the range of his gente. It's the perfect capper to a perfect record. That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producers are Kevin Ferguson and Christian Duenas. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Kara Hart. Our senior producer at Maximum Fun is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 